Released in 2007 and based on the 1986 book of the same name by Robert Graysmith, charting the manhunt for the Zodiac Killer, a serial killer who hunted in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s to early 70s while taunting the police and sending ciphers to the newspapers with a case still remaining unsolved. Fincher had initially wanted to make a film about another unsolved murder with his plans to adapt James Elroy's novel The Black Dahlia into a five-hour miniseries only for plans to fall through and Brian De Palma eventually directed an adaptation instead, leaving Fincher free to move on to Zodiac. Arguably his most personal film, having grown up in San Almazo in Marlin County when the initial murders were happening, he still carried memories of the police following his school bus while Zodiac in many ways became the ultimate boogeyman to the young filmmaker. But with a case built on so much speculation and hearsay, the end result, would it demystify or only confuse the facts further? We find out tonight. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you listen to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. and T. They are of course still in our David Fincher season as we work our way through the filmography of one of the great masters of modern cinema and tonight it uh, gives us great pleasure to welcome another guest to the booth tonight as we welcome Nick Rehack from French Charles Sunday so welcome Nick. Hey how you doing? I'm good and Nick I mean you yourself you obviously over at French Charles Sunday you're a blogger you're a podcaster I mean what did how did you sort of stumble into podcasting and and just writing about film? Well, uh, it was kind of an accident, really. I went to a midnight release. I think it was midnight or a late night release, either way, of Dinner for Schmucks when that was out in theaters, and I ran into the entire French Show Sunday gang, and um, we kind of waved at each other and said hello. And I knew all of them except for Jess because we had all previously worked at Best Buy together. Um, and it had been like years since I seen him and we were kind of reconnecting. And I was like, Oh, how are you guys doing? They're like, we're great. And they're like, actually we're seeing this cause we do a podcast. And I was kind of like new to the idea of what a podcast was. And they said, you should come on and hang out sometime. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I got a text a couple days later and then I showed up, uh, at that time we were in Jason's mom's basement <laughs> and, uh, it was just a bunch of mics on a table. I came in, sat down, and then the rest is history. They just kept inviting me back, and then eventually I became a, a fixture. Uh, we moved to Lindsay's basement to record, and now we're in Jess and Rob's uh, dining room recording. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been great to hang out with the gang literally every week. We're best friends. We're in group chats. We, I mean, through. All of the uh, you know Corona stuff going on. We'll we'll do screenings over Zoom and watch movies. And uh, 
So they really got me started, and then when I saw the writing aspect, I really enjoyed that. And I don't do it as much as I should, and by as much, I mean I haven't done it at all at all <laughs> lately. So I really need to uh, pick that back up. But it's just been something that I enjoy doing, and it's it's a cyclical thing because I won't like it, and then I'll love it again, and then I won't like it, and then I'll love it again. There's always that one piece you write where it's like. This is actually pretty good. I'm I'm actually I, I enjoy doing this. But then there's always that piece where it's like, what am I doing? Like this is nobody wants to read this garbage. But uh, but yeah, that's how we got here. I'm always really sort of envious of those writers out there who can just take any film and produce their 500 words or whatever they set out to write on any particular film. And I know there's people like David Brooke over at Blueprint Review who just like reviews films which I wouldn't even think about tackling. So. I've always uh, really sort of admired those guys over there. And when it obviously comes to Fincher's work, I mean, was there a particular film which served as your entry point? Or has it just been one of those directors that you sort of caught as these release films? I feel like uh, like the average American male going to college, I found Fight Club uh, my freshman year of college and watched it. And I was like, oh, man, this is great. Like, no one's making film like this. <laughs> This <laughs> is so so radical, um, and then it be quick. It quickly became just who directed this. I need to see everything he's ever done. Um, this was the time where Blockbuster was still around, and there happened to be one maybe five minutes from campus, and they gave student discounts. So I'm like, here we are. So every Friday night, it was going to the rental store and going through and looking. Okay, do they have this one? Do they have that one? I've seen this already. I don't care. I want to see it again. Um, so it was, that's, that's kind of how it all started. And then every chance I get, I see a Fincher film in theaters. Um, when I was living in new Orleans, they did a lot of midnight screenings and I was fortunate enough to catch fight club at midnight, uh, with a bunch of people. And that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, any chance I get, I'm there. And obviously with French Sunday, we have, we're very, very fortunate to have press credentials. So we're always getting into films before they, like a week before they get released, and um, we all kind of fight over the venture ones. <laughs> We're like, who gets it? And it's like, well, somebody's going to have to. And we have to play a game or rock, paper, scissors or something. But it's uh, it's he's definitely a director that the gang is obsessed with, like him, David Lynch, really any director whose name, first name is David were there. Yeah. Well, he's in the moment he is pushing forward with his the release of his next film, where everyone else is sort of delaying their films to next year, he's still pushing ahead. He's saying he's going to release it on the same day. And I think that for us folks in the UK, it's going to go straight to Netflix, but I don't know how it's going to work for you guys in the States. So, whether this is going You're to talking about uh, Mank? Yeah, that's what I know. For some reason, I can never remember the name of that film. So, that's yeah. a weird name. Um, I feel like that's coming straight to Netflix for us, too. Because um, with Annihilation, you guys got the st- you got the cinema release, and we just got straight Netflix. And uh, right. when it came to Snowpiercer, you guys got it, and we got nothing for eight years until Netflix what? decided to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, no, is that real? Eight, eight years we got the it was in distribution hell. We got one showing at a Glasgow Film Festival, and then the, when it came, we had like said last year we finally got it through Netflix, and. There were so many people like on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. And it was sort of like, why are you guys so excited about Snowpiercer coming out? It's like been out for years and it's like, yeah, we never got it. So we've <laughs> got the Blu-ray release at the end of this month. And that'll be the first time That's crazy. you can have a physical copy of it. Wow. Um, so, yeah. it's um, 
And but I mean, you drew it in comparison. I mean, you guys didn't get Battle Royale until about five years after we did. We That's got true. Um, all the boys love Mandy Lane about the same amount of time as well. And um, mm-hmm. we got our copy of Peter Jackson's Brain Dead on Cut. And I mean, this isn't bad going, seeing as you guys all consider us Brits to be a little stiff in the collar. But our censorship <laughs> certainly doesn't seem to say that. <laughs> that's that's true. Well, I mean, you guys also get some real special editions of things. They are uh, a 4K of Elephant Man just got released. It's not here in the states. It's over on your neck of the woods. So I had to get that through uh, Amazon UK, and that finally show up. Thankfully, 4K players are region free, and that that is a gorgeous transfer. Like yeah. it is, it is beautiful. Well, I'm just, as I said, the when it comes to distribution of certain things, we 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 do alright. But then you look at. Some of the Japanese titles, I mean, when, obviously, Criterion released their Godzilla correction, when um, Arrow announced their Gamera set, you could not click that button fast enough uh, to get those, because <laughs> they were not released in the UK until they they got those sets. So wow. I, think I have to apologize to my eldest son that he was late for his play session because Daddy was too busy trying to push his order through on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities, priorities. It was so like it flashed up, and I was like, "No, go through here. Take credit cards." <laughs> so, oh man. But I mean, obviously, back to to Fincher. I mean, is there a particular film that sort of stands out in his filmography, or has it been pretty much across the board uh, that you've enjoyed his work? Um, across the board, I've enjoyed his work. But one film that really sticks out is the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, I, I never read the books, um, but I saw the film was coming out and the trailer got me that just thundering version of, Oh, what is it? That Led Zeppelin song. doesn't matter that song. And, uh, Karen O from the yeah, yeah, yeah. is just like delivering a fierce and powerful performance. Like it sucked me in and it was my favorite trailer for the longest time. Uh, we got a screener of it. Uh, and there was a girl I was seeing at the time, and I took her to see it with me. And it's it's a later screening, and she starts to rest her head on my shoulder and kind of put her arm around me. And it's just before uh, this very brutal sexual assault. Uh, and then she, like, slowly backs away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of look at each other, and then, like, there's a really uncomfortable giggle. Um but that always stands out. Um, so anytime that scene comes up, I get a little giggly, and it's the complete opposite reaction you're supposed to have. Um, and then it quickly goes away. But uh, I was real disappointed when he kind of stepped away from the project or whatever happened, and he couldn't continue with the trilogy. Um, the ones they initially did, uh, those those were good. Those were fine. Um, but I definitely wanted to see uh, Fincher's visual style and what he would have done with the film so that one and uh obviously zodiac i i watch this too much but those these two are the ones that uh really jump out at me yeah so obviously when you i mean you obviously said already zodiac's one of your personal favorites i mean for myself this was one of those it was one of those ones i put lower down his filmography even though it made a lot of critics top 10 list when it came out kim i believe this was your first time watching it all the way through because you'd tried to take it on before and it haven't really vibed with you is that correct yes yeah the first time i watched i don't i don't even remember why i stopped watching it uh i fell asleep i know but i don't know why i didn't go back to watch it uh yeah (laughs) so this is my first complete viewing of it okay um 
Well, the film itself is... It's, I want to say that it's uh, as autobiographical as you can get, but when you're dealing with an unsolved murder, you're working on a lot of speculation. And Fincher, when he was doing the initial research for this, did interviews with a lot of the key cast rather than just relying on recollections and what had been written in the book because he wanted sort of the freshest versions possible and rather than ones that had been muddled over the years. And it's through... The story that we see, we see a number of flashbacks throughout the film, uh, which can be perceived as witness recollections or perhaps just like uh, Fincher's sort of takes on uh, based on the evidence that happened. But the main story it follows uh, Robert Graysmith. He's a cartoonist and a newspaper who's the one who's able to solve the cipher that the Zodiac sends into the paper. And as a result of this, forms a real fascination with finding out the identity of the Zodiac killer as he bring gets brought into this world and we've switched between various characters throughout the film including mark ruffalo's uh inspector david dave toshi uh we also have paul avery a uh, playboy robert down jr who's a writer at the paper um and the film itself is very sort of slow paced very methodical as it tries to present the evidence in and engage in an informative way so that even if you weren't had no sort of details about the Zodiac Killer um, going in, that you would still be able to follow the case. It's not one that sort of played up just for the murder fanboys, so to speak. But <laughs> when we obviously have that initial, the film opens, and it, it opens with that sort of very abrupt ending as we get our first sort of introduction to the Zodiac Killer. I mean, how do we find this sort of initial introduction of it because I thought it was it's very effective. I mean, all every time we see the, this killer, he's always in shadow. We never get a really sort of good look of him. But at the same time, Fincher really sort of grabs the sort of essence of who this killer apparently is. So, um, I mean, what? How did you think of like how he chooses to open with that um, initial sort of murder of the te- the two teens in Lovers Lane? Oh, I was I was being polite and hanging back for uh, Kim to answer, but I'll just I'll just you jump go, in. You go this. ahead. I, I, um, <laughs> um, it always it always caught me off guard. Um, with a film like that, yeah, a lot of like horror films, there always tends to be like a big kill in the beginning or something to kind of catch your attention, and this plays like that to an extent because it's just hey, there's two kids are going up to like a lover's lane type, and all of a sudden they're just all alone. And you kind of think something's going to happen or maybe they see something. That's another thing that tends to happen. Somebody sees something and then they report it, but instead it just happens right to them. And it's so quick. It's so brutal. It really just throws you off. And then you're trying to keep up. And then it, it, this is a film that just keeps throwing you off like that too. So it, it really, really caught me off guard. It still catches me off guard because it's one of those films where you think you remember the pacing, but then you don't. And it just adds to that sense again. Well, yeah, I mean, like, what happens is, is is really, it's very rare to have, I guess, like, while people you like to use opening credits where it's a little bit slower to build a foundation, he kind of jumps right in to, to just show the brutality of the Zodiac Killer right away in that first scene. And it kind of gives you a good idea about, well, what the killer is capable of doing. Yeah, and... I mean, this is what surprised me as well. The when you look at how the the killing takes place, where he he's supposedly a very sort of accurate shot with how, especially how 
coldly and cleanly he assassinates the girl, yet he becomes kind of sloppy when it comes to uh, the guy, Mike, who uh, survives. And I was so sure that he actually shoots him, but he he shoots him initially, and then he comes back and shoots him again in the back. And yet somehow he still survives. So, I mean, do you think that the Zodic was actually intended to keep this guy alive, or so that someone there to build his sort of mythos, or was he just kind of sloppy with this sort of initial kill? I think it's sloppy. Mm-hmm. I think it's just he's shooting. He's trying to get his bearings because, you know, potentially this is his first, if not one of his first. Um, you're also shooting at night. Yeah, you have the lights and everything, but any number of variables could throw you off. And, I, you know, I just I think it was sloppy. I don't think he intended for it. But since it did happen, I think then maybe and this is just speculation. I think maybe once that story was told, that's where like the fame comes in. He's like, oh, I can really do something with this and make a name for myself and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because I mean, the Zodiac Killer is one of those those kids who's, who really sort of sort of enjoyed the notoriety of his crimes. He liked the attention that was created for himself. And he, and we see this in the fact that he taunts the police. I mean, there's very few killers that actually, or terrorists who actually sort of relish in taunting the police the way they did. You could obviously look at the people like the Unabomber. You can go back even further still and like talk, look at like Jack the Ripper, who also taunted the, um, the police at the time. And, it's a real, I have to say, it's sort of like a real interesting move when a killer decides to taunt the police rather than just, you know, try and lay low when you compare to like other sort of notorious killers of the the time. So, do the fact that he's sending these coded messages is it this sort of like it's so sort of egotistical, almost like uh, godlike uh, sort of ego that he's sort of working with that he thinks he is above the the police and just the fact he's free to do what he wants i i absolutely think so i think it's a it's just power it's just hey i grew up and i was picked on or i was just left behind and now everyone's gonna see how smart i am everyone's gonna see how they should have known me growing up um everybody's just gonna see it but i'm also gonna keep it a secret to show that nobody can figure that out you didn't know that growing up you're not gonna know that as an adult and then it just grows into this power consumption. I think it's the same for a lot of people. I mean, like you mentioned, uh, Timothy McVeigh with the Oklahoma City bombings. Uh, you have, I can't think of his name off the top. Oh, uh, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, a lot of stuff like that. Like, I think it's just, it's all power. It's all ego. So, I mean, with the, obviously the Zodiac, I mean, he thinks he's above everyone else. I mean, he even tries to make sure no one can solve his code by basically taking out every book of codes that he's used as his inspirations we find out a bit later in the film only for it to still be cracked because of people like uh i don't really want to use the word hero but the person was choosing to follow here um the cartoonist robert graysmith he's really into word jumbles he's really into puzzles and is able to crack it just through his sort of puzzle solving skills so how do we obviously feel about robert as the person we're obviously following here because there's various people we could have followed i mean we could obviously followed um the police detective and just done it as a police procedural or we could have even done through robert downey jr's character who seems to be like the most affected out of all the characters in the film of how dark this case gets and the twist it obviously takes but uh obviously we've chosen with this one to obviously follow um this cartoonist as he's sort of goes about his amateur sleuthing and slowly tries to put together all the information he finds. But how do you find um, 
him as a, a character to obviously be sort of following this case through. I mean, I would disagree that we we didn't follow anybody else because there's a good chunk in the middle where we're following the detectives mainly. Um, I actually found that part a little less interesting, I guess. Um, I liked the when we were following like the common person follow like that was trying to decipher it because Robert Graysmith was such an interesting character because he didn't seem like he I think like uh, Paul Avery the char- the character for uh, Robert Downey Jr was like uh was asking him why he was so interested in this and I think it's because his purpose like the purpose that he has and why he's doing this is it what the purpose of him of doing this really adds to the equation of why he's so obsessed with just solving this as a given purpose or whatever. So, um, I, I, I really like watching, um, J, uh, Jake Guyenhall do this role. Yeah. Yeah. I have to, uh, I have to completely agree with Kim. Um, I think his character really is just a conduit for the normal person. It's he doesn't know anything about the world of journalism and the world of crime, just what he sees from watching TV. Um, and when he hears certain things, like when they talk about dangerous game and he's like, oh, uh, man, is the most dangerous game. He remembers that uh, that book, that story. And it's funny because watching the film, when that hits, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can remember reading that freshman year of high school, too. And it kind of clicks. It's these little things that you hear and remember. And then much like any of us, if we get interested enough in a topic, we can fall down those rabbit holes. And imagine if they had the Internet then, how how much deeper and how much more uh, he would kind of not not lose his mind, but become unhinged just with being so obsessed with this guy and trying to figure it out. Um, so I, I think it's great. I also really, really like Jake Gyllenhaal, too. So and the more he's put out, the more I've just enjoyed it. Yeah, it's funny you should obviously mention about like the internet comparison because we obviously saw that with the documentary "Don't Fuck with Cats," where you had the internet sleuths following the the mysterious videos and find, trying to find out the truth behind those. Um, and I, something you mentioned obviously already about the finding purpose. Do you think obviously when we look at what Grace Smith's character, when he's a see he's right, he's being a single parent as he's raising his son. Do we think that the Zodiac case really gives him a sense of purpose that he feels that he was missing in his life? Because basically he, he's a cartoonist. He just raises his son. He hasn't really got a huge amount going go- else, uh, sort of going on for him. I mean, he's really sort of a background character at the newspaper, really, until he sort of shows his uh, puzzle-cracking skills. I think it's just one of those things where it's it's just like the killers that we're trying to track and solve ourselves. He's just kind of to himself. He's alone. Uh, nobody really knows who he is or what he's capable of. But rather than take out that, not frustration, but take out that curiosity through murder and getting attention that way, he just kind of starts to display and show what he can do. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I do puzzles, and this is fun. Uh, he clearly expresses himself through his art as a cartoonist. But all of a sudden being thrust into something new and having it affect him indirectly and then directly, I think that's just a jumping off point to be like, now I'm a part of a team. Now I'm a part of a gang. And, you know, off the go- and that's something that even uh, Danny Jr.'s character is trying to do when he's talking to um, uh, Tashi later on. And he's like, we're not a team. Uh, I think I, I think they were Vallejo or something like that. This is when they're leaving to get back in the taxi cab and he's confronting them. And he's like, we're not a team. Like, we're two separate people kind of thing. And 
I think that's what's happening here with Graysmith. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, especially because when we have that scene at the beginning where um, where Graysmith leaves work and obviously we've already seen a good part of his routine like he has to take his kids to school and then and then he goes to work and it seems like it, there's like this routine going on with um with everything that's there and then when he leaves work he crosses like um Paul Avery at the bar with everybody else but somehow he's in that he's he's in the same office but he's not invited to these things so he feels a bit like a nobody and the solving this case and and being able to share his know-how on this seems like it in some ways I still think it gives him some purpose but it also gives him some value like he he at the office like Paul Avery starts approaching him more about these things and and he even has the the know-how that he's able to teach Avery how to solve um how to go about solving these ciphers and whatnot um, but I think, you know, Graysmith is more of, he's more of like an outside perspective, um, because like, I don't know if English has a similar saying, but in, in Chinese, we have a saying that, uh, people who are inside, like who are trapped inside have like a restricted vision. So people are from the outside, like see, see the big picture better kind of thing. Um, and I think that kind of captures his character really well. Yeah. I like that thing. I like that. Um, now, I just want to obviously touch as well upon the character Paul Avery, because I thought that I wasn't sure if it was Danny's, um, Danny's sort of performance here or if it's just the character himself, but it felt kind of like a very nothingy sort of character and was just really there just to keep um, a connection for Graysmith to have that sort of, of, that sort of track, because obviously he's a crime reporter, so... It felt in many ways that he was sort of like filling in those areas where it would seem implausible for Graysmith to obviously to be there, but it felt that his character was, I don't know, I just never felt any sort of connection to his character, which is frustrating really, because I love, I love Robert Downey Jr. I think he's a great actor, and either like pre-rehab or post-rehab, I've enjoyed his work throughout, but here I just felt he was kind of, I don't sure if he was like phoning it in or just the character was underwritten, it just felt... Something wasn't connecting with the with his character here. Well, I I kind of he's just ancillary. Like, there's no real need to have his character, but you have to get the journalism side of things and showing how these killings affected the paper. And I hate to keep saying the word conduit, but he's kind of you know the conduit or the face of what we're seeing for journalism. And he just he's kind of there to move the plot for uh, for Graysmith. He can kind of bounce something off of him or kind of put two and two together. And you see when they have a lot of conversations, like when they're finally at the bar and they're drinking those big blue fish bowls, like something just clicks and then off he goes. And, you know, he's just by himself. So I think, you know, he's just kind of there. I don't think the performance is phoned in in any way. I think he's just maybe resting on his laurels because he that's kind of like what he excels at is being like just a very like flamboyant and here i am and everybody look at me kind of guy um but he just i don't know it's just it just feels natural he just makes it work when with the actual passage of time the film is really kind of a new, unique in the fact that rather than give us specific dates it's always like two weeks later three days later these little passages of time whereas other films would go for a very specific times and dates of like you know this is the moment of time where here fincher chooses just to almost play the story out in what could be said is like a real time really in the fact that we constantly have these 
weak leaps in in time. I mean, as a story telling sort of method, I mean, does that make you sort of more connected to the story, or is it just felt like a more of a sort of a flare on Fincher's part? The same way that when we look at his opening credits uh, here, that every time a, a name or a title appears on the screen, it vanishes off into that Zodiac Codex. I mean, when you think about like time span, this thing's this story spans so long, right? Um, when it has that long, like, a long duration, it works a little bit more. Like, when it's just days apart, it, it feels like, I mean, I don't care too much about it, I guess. Uh, I think that's that's where I'm at with that. I, I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't really bother me. I don't really think there was a lot of, like, time element for me. It was just more the fact that the time element really comes in at the end when... When they start, you know, everything really starts piecing together, and and then all this time stuff starts to come into play and starts making sense. But in many cases, a lot of thrillers are like that, where everything kind of makes sense and everything executed in the beginning kind of all comes together at the end, and that's what makes a good thriller because all those little details that didn't seem to matter before suddenly all come into play. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think. To an extent, I think it doesn't matter the gaps in, in time. It doesn't matter days, weeks. None of it is. Uh, they go through the specific dates of the murders, and then if there's anything uh, obviously that historically happened, they need to hit that date. But it's just one of those things where, I mean, time passes differently for all people. Uh, right now with this corona stuff we got going on, some people that are essential workers day to day, their days are going by a little bit quicker. Those that are quarantined and stuck in their homes – Days are going by slower, and you know, days are turning into weeks, weeks into months. Uh, I mean, me for example, I was considered essential, so March to now is a blur to me because I was still at work and going through. Whereas I know other people, and they're like, "This is taking forever." So I think three days, weeks, it doesn't matter. There's still that intent, and they're still looking for it, but nothing new has presented itself. So why talk about it? We see what's going on with the characters. We know who they are, and we understand their arcs. Just through like the little minutia here and there, uh, like Kim pointed out earlier, when you know Gray Smith walks past the bar and sees everybody's there without him, okay, that boom informs the character right there. We don't need a whole separate scene where it's like for a day he's just like by himself, like on a day off. What's he doing? He's just home alone doing nothing. We we really don't need that. Yeah, and this is I think is one of my first problems with the film and the fact that it is pacing compared to the other Finch films we've seen at this point the pacing in this one seems a lot slower and it's almost like it's excruciating the amount of detail of like the day-to-day life stuff that we have here and I just felt that so much of this could be cut out because I mean this clock's in about 157 minutes so it's quite a lengthy watch it's not the sort of thing that you just sort of put on and as a sort of casual thing you're sort of like it's, it's almost like you have to say yeah I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch Zodiac tonight um, and compared to like Fight Club which again was another lengthy watch but with Fight Club it does everything zaps through at such a rapid pace but this one really takes its time and I was sort of like glad when we broke away from these characters to see you know catch up with Zodiac and see what he was up to this time um, that it felt almost like a it felt like a, a relief and that uh, finally something seeing something different than just watching these people muddle over day-to-day stuff, which I think really could have been trimmed down a lot. But, I mean, Nick obviously is a fan of the film, but, I mean, did that <laughs> sort of engage you at all? Or did you, does it provide any sort of tedium that perhaps myself and Kim apparently found? I think I think it's, 
I'd like it. I think it's okay. methodical. I think it's purposeful because you got to think it starts what July fourth, nineteen sixty nine, and then the film ends like late eighties, early nineties. So there's all this time they're going through so much time. Mm-hmm. They're trying so hard to solve this murder. You're so tired at the end of it because you're just running into dead ends. You can't confirm certain evidence. Like nothing's adding up at certain parts. You're just tired and you want it to be over. And that's how you feel as the film goes along. It's why is this a dead end? Why is this? We think it's this guy. It's not this guy. Now we have to take a step back. Now we have to go over evidence that we already have. Relationships are falling apart. People are changing drastically. And by the end, you're exhausted. You're tired. You want it to be over. And then that's when the film ends. So I think it just it works for us. You know, I mean, we go from Graysmith being a single guy with a little boy to in a relationship and that falls apart. We see Avery go from this charismatic, bombastic guy. He's, you know, um, quiet, uh, maybe a little bit crazy, living on a houseboat. Tashi, you know, goes from this ace detective that, like, Bullet was modeled after. And now, like, he's just kind of <clears throat> assumedly quiet and retired. Like, it's it's methodical and it's purposeful. And I do agree, though. You have to definitely be in the mood to see this movie. It's not yes. like, well, oh, let's just go to the shelf. And, okay, you know what? Zodiac tonight. Fight Club or um, oh, Social Network. For me, those are easy ones of like, yeah, let's do Social Network tonight. Pop it on and we're going to have a nice time. But Zodiac is one of those, like, I got to be, I got to want to see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's probably why I've not watched this one. I think I've only seen it a couple of times prior to the, obviously tonight's viewing. So it's I think it's be really the pace that puts me off this one. No, I mean I can deal with the fact it's an un, it's an open ended case because as it's in life mm-hmm. and like so many real life cases, it it was left uh, open and it still is open now. And it sort of blows my mind that you know, like the Golden State Killer, that with the advances in modern forensics and whatnot, that we could eventually one day find out who the Zodiac was, and and uh, perhaps in many ways, like get a, an answer to a couple of like the big questions this film poses of who it could be. Because I think Fincher does, when it comes to like guessing who the killer could potentially be, he really puts a strong case of course for like both of the main suspects throughout the, for the film. Uh, which we'll come back to in a minute. And what I want to obviously go back to really is just uh, the second of the murders here, because this one takes place in not just daylight, but brilliant daylight. We're out in the countryside, and we've got these two young, these two uh, young married things who notice the zodiac hanging by the tree. And again, we it brings me back to what the the first murder we see, where he doesn't seem like he's. You know, fully got it worked out what he's going to do. He seems almost cautious. He's like watching from a distance, and the fact he's all in black and so perfectly blends in with the tree, it makes you really do a double take on: Did you see something over there? Was this the gut? Was this this uh, this mysterious killer? And I think after so many of the scenes here, it's this um, sequence that just really stands out for myself. Um, but how did you guys feel about that second sort of murder? I mean, obviously it's a murder in brilliant daylight. The boogie man is out in the day when we're supposed to all be safe. And I, I, I seriously, I have it in my notes here. And it was like, when that moment happened, I was like, is this a copycat? And then I was like, (laughs) (laughs) at a moment like that. And then, and then like the crime went from like, really like just kind of threats 
And then you were wondering whether it was like, oh, it's going to be empty threats, right? And then he get, and then it gets really violent. And then it was like, okay, now that's the real deal type of thing. Um, no, it was, it was, it was, um, it's very different because we usually see, I think most of the other crimes are all at night. So this was kind of like a contrast. And um, I liked it. <laughs> I think that's all I have to say. But I liked it. For me, it's one of those scenes where sometimes I can watch it. Sometimes I have to look away just because, you know, the sound of the screams and the the sound of the knife and everything. But kind of like uh, like you pointed out, Elwood, it's 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 terrifying because it's happening during the day. That's what makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre so terrifying is because it's happening during the day. It's, you know, the boogeyman's supposed to stay at night. It's supposed to be a dark scene, shadows. You don't know what's happening, but here comes this guy. He's cloaked. He's hooded. We don't know what's going on, and then he just ties you up and stabs you next to a, a lake, and no one else sees this? Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, unfortunately, when I was watching this time, my wife decided at that point to give me the true crime <laughs> synopsis that um, she's like what are you watching I was like oh I'm watching Zodiac he's like oh I thought that was what you're watching and then she's watching this murder unfold and the fact that he's friends this couple and has them they basically forces them to comply where he ties them up and she was like saying that oh yeah John Douglas who was like head of the behavior unit at the FBI says like if if you're faced with an attack um, you know an attacker, someone with a weapon, run away because it's liable that they won't be able to hit a moving target and all the rest. And I'm thinking, oh, that's really interesting, honey. But, um, you know, you're kind of taking someone away from the moment here that Finch is trying to craft. Kind of cutting down the tension. <laughs> so, yeah, that bit, I'm passing the uh, the full sort of shock and awe. But at the same time, I'm, I'm seeing we're here, we've got another killing where he leaves one to tell the story. And all the time I'm watching this, I'm going... This is just, you know, um, natural born killers. They always leave one to tell the story. Um, yeah. Kind of like a hint of what's going to be on my further watching uh, when we get to the end of this. So. <laughs> but we get into the, the, the killing after this, which is an attempted killing, no less. But I have to say that that was the, out of all these murders, because all the time the, the Zodiac, I mean, we never really get any idea of who he is. He's always masked, he's always in shadow. But. What? Sorry, my my cat is scratching. Damn studio cats! <laughs> you good there? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. So we obviously with the second uh, the the attempted murder, so to speak, that follows uh, after this, where he's plays the the supposed helpful person on the highway who's helping to fix the the woman's tire, uh, only for it to, of course, fall off in his cunning plot. That scene in particular, I found absolutely terrifying, and I don't know if it's just because my mentality has been all screwed up having kids and stuff that I can no longer see. Like, if there's movies and kids are in peril, it just goes right through me. It's just the worst thing for myself. And here we got a woman who's faced with a young baby with a dangerous man in the car. I was, oh, I was a mess watching that sequence. Um, but how? I mean, that's got to be like for myself. That's one of the scariest moments of the film. I mean, yeah. And it's that slow recollection. It's like you drove past the service station, and he's like, "No, it was closed." And you're like, "No, it wasn't, my friend." But I mean, it was so stupid. Okay, well, it was so stupid. Like I didn't. My 
my like realistic and like my teachings from a child thing came into me and I was like why do TV why do movies always make people so stupid <laughs> and that's my main issue with horror movies a lot and it's the same situation here it's like if if like say I do I used to do a lot of like obviously before the coronavirus had, I used to do road trips all the time with my friends and we would drive after work to some place in the middle of the night and it's not like if someone was to stop you about something, you wouldn't just let them do things like that. Like, oh, take like tighten your tighten your 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 Wait your your wheels or whatever. And it's just I'm just like, that's just so stupid. Like I that was that was like yes, it's terrifying the whole idea of what was going on. But at the same time, it could have been avoided altogether if you had like a sense of just just common sense of not stopping. Why would you believe this person? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just I'm I'm too cautious. I don't know. Is it just me? I I don't know. This this scene, I I have to agree with you. This scene has been a bit of a double edged sword. At at times, it's terrifying. Like when he says, "I didn't know you had a baby." That takes the breath out of me every time. Yeah. It's just it it gets me in a rattle. I don't even have kids, but it rattles me. But at the same time, it always did bug me that why are you gonna let some rando touch your wheels and tires like that like just keep going and pull into a station yourself or anything like that that that's one of the i it might be the only scene in this film that kind of bothers me and keeps it from from like if i had to give this a rating and to me it's like a 9.8 that point two is this scene right here it's that like it's it feels a little uneven and i'm kind of confused as to why it's happening but obviously historically if it happened it has to be covered I'm really curious to know who actually plays the Zodiac Killer in the film because he doesn't seem to actually, no one seems to be credited as playing the killer in the role and I don't know if this is an intentional on Finch's part that he doesn't want you thinking it's like either these two potential sort of suspects and that he just drafts some other person in to, to play this this shape really um, According I, thought to, that, uh, I, thought, I thought I thought IMDB had, the, had credited a few people I was Yeah, they, it's yeah. it's it's three different act of plan. This way, every time it's a different, you know, a walk, a different gate, a different, like like you said, kind of a blob, an amorphous thing where it's always changing. So, yeah, three different actors. That's, I think that perfectly suits it because I'm, here you're obviously working on different people's recollections. So it would make sense mm-hmm. that you would, wouldn't have, like, this uniform idea of what the Zodiac is. And I like that sort of idea of just having three different actors playing because it is just three different impressions really so mm-hmm. um so obviously back to um our investigators here and obviously we we when it comes to mark ruffalo's character he does get that sort of standout sequence where he does a long interview with one of the potential uh suspects in which a scene which many people have seen say has been the sort of standout point, and this is where mm-hmm. uh, they question Arthur Lee Allen, um, who was a suspect, he's one of the suspects, and they notice he's wearing a Zodiac wristwatch. And I have to say that if you're calling yourself a Zodiac, is it really going to be the smartest thing to wear a Zodiac wristwatch? It's like the same way that at one point the Zodiac's, you know, criticizing the fact that he doesn't have a button out and he wants to see people <laughs> wearing a button like Zodiac buttons. Um, so it makes me brings in sort of question. I mean, 
do any of you sort of suspect that Arthur Lee Allen could be and the fact that he's so because I mean if he's wearing a Zodiac watch and he is the Zodiac it would certainly play into that sort of god complex we've touched upon already this taunting of the police this would be like another thing it's sort of like just putting it out there because he obviously when we see the second murder he's obviously even got his own little badge on his what mm. I want to call like um, a Ku Klux Klan uniform because obviously with the hood and the just the way it is so he's already sort of building up this sense of identity of who he is as a killer so it would almost kind of make sense that he would like have this clue out in the open for them and see if they ever picked up on it i think i think the watch tends to be more of like a MacGuffin kind of thing i think it just so happens that the watch is that way i mean later in the film uh, when uh, Gravesmith is talking with Bob Vaughn and they look at like the film reel and everything, I think that's where it comes from. I think it's this idea that you know I'm going to be famous like the movies, and you have this little blip that starts just before the old movies do. Um, I think it's I think it's just purely coincidental. I I, I do I do I I think that yeah. Mm. And I mean I, I love as well the fact that we get to see the fact that. Even though the this killer is really sort of still at large, the fact that Hollywood's already churning out movies is we get to see <laughs> Toshi go to see Dirty Harry, uh, which he's unable to sit through, obviously, because he's... It, it's almost like he's been taunted, the fact that this killer is gaining this sort of celebrity, this sort of cult identity, and he's still there treating as a very sort of open investigation. This is still a very dangerous person to him, so... Yeah, I mean, I really do love that that sort of that sort of sequence there, and just the the fact that it's is a very sort of sedate sort of interview. It's not like very heated. There's no sort of like jump out moments, and it's all just in the details, which I think is something that Fincher does well. He he's always good at presenting details. He doesn't need to be like you know constantly shove it in the audience's face it's like look pay attention to this this is really important mm-hmm. and there's very few directors who have that sort of confidence in their audience just to throw information out there and just let them piece it together i think david lynch is another one but to compare david lynch and david fincher i mean they're operating on two very different planes <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> even planes of uh, consciousness and thought <laughs> <laughs> exactly but he does do really good coffee a damn fine cup of coffee. I'm saying that's what I'm enjoying this evening. It uh, goes down smooth. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, now, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about um, oh, what's his name, Mark Ruffalo um, at all. I'm for myself. I mean, he's kind of like tainted now by being the third best Hulk. So. It's um, mm, that's I've... a bold that's a bold statement. You just gonna say well, that and walk over it? Oh no! I mean, it, I don't know. Was it off air that we talked about it or on air? I oh, no, we, on we, air. Talk, we talked. We talked about, about it, it in the Hulk one and um in in Angley in Angley's Hulk. We talked about it. Um, okay. Well, we had I'll a whole discussion about Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> you can go and t- listen to uh, our our whole discussion on that. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I, I don't. I don't have an issue with with Mark okay. Ruffalo being the Hulk, but uh, but but uh, Elwood does. <laughs> it's not like I've like got a vendetta against him and like Disney. Well, yeah, I've got a vendetta against Disney, but I that's don't my know. Thing. But no, I mean, let's see. Like, <laughs> don't to go too far off, off track here, but yeah, when we look at like the classic Hulks, we've got Farino, Norton, and then we've got Ruffalo, and then we've got whatever the hell was happening in Hulk. 
Um, it's a whole other issue there. But yeah, Mark Ruffalo, he's just... I don't know, he just feels like kind of just the whipping boy who's just there just to be sad all the time. And I mean, the, he just never really resonates for myself as either Hulk or Banner. He's just sort of there and he just feels like... He sort of feels like he's just there because he's willing to play by the rules where Norton obviously wasn't. And Norton, for myself, yeah. will always be a stronger Banner as we saw in the Incredible Hulk, I just thought he was—he just sort of nailed that character and really knew what he was doing. Whereas with Ruffalo, we get, oh, I'm angry all the time, and it's like, wow, that's real great stuff, Mark. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just okay. happy when he turns into um, you know CGI Hulk because we're finally we're getting something, we're getting <laughs> we're getting something than just a, another Killjoy because. That's the problem I have with like the Marvel movies, and it's and it only sort of resonated with me recently when I, I've uh, been catching up on like the things, and I watched like Venom, and I watched Shazam, and I watched the new Spider Man, and I was like, these movies are so much fun. And it's like, why do I not enjoy the new Marvel ones? And it's like because we cram them full of killjoys like Captain America, and we have all this weight, and they're three hours long and a just CGI mess. Um, and these films sort of tap into that, and that's why I always liked Norton because he taps into the what. Banner is he? He's a comic book character. He's not a real person. And Ruffalo seems to constantly try to be playing as like this man who's carrying the weight of the world in his shoulders. And we see it again with this film. But you can kind of understand with Toshi why he's carrying the weight of the world in his shoulders. I mean, he's facing this impossible task of catching this killer who's basically taunting him at every turn. Um, mm. And he's kind of like a, in many ways. Um, oh, who is the lead in the wire? Lead, uh, oh, uh, oh, Dominic uh, McNulty. I know yeah. the character was McNulty, but I can't think of the actor. Yeah, yeah, right he's now. very much like McNulty in the Wire, in the fact that his obsession with getting the job done it only proves to be detrimental to it. The fact, I mean, he gets busted down. He goes, as you said already, he's hotshot detective when he's introduced, and he's just busted down by the end of the film. So, and it's all just because of his obsession with this this killer. That's a really good comparison. I never thought of that before. And I'm the one in Baltimore <laughs> living the wire. <laughs> oh, man. How's it working? How's it compare? What's that? Wire to Zodiac? No, wire to Baltimore, obviously. Not wire to Zodiac. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's some truth there, uh, especially when you get to season three in the politics, definitely season two in the docs, and season four with the education system. And season five with it, yeah, it's 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 fairly accurate. It's it might have gotten better, but yeah, it's fairly accurate. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I think this, I think the with the the film being the structure it has, and the fact that it, it feels more grand in real life, it's not like this fantastical sort of detective story that we're dealing with. So. Do we, I mean, the fact that it's so grounded in real life, these people have real life issues. I mean, it's like, like a downer on like what you hope would be like this real sort of gripping uh, detective romp, really, as we like follow the clues and we track down this, this killer. I, I I don't think it does. I think it just kind of grounds a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like you you watch these like NCIS or uh, Law and Orders where, you know, you follow the beats and you kind of figure out what's going to happen where this is a little slower. It's a little more methodical. It's we're really taking a look and we have to figure out, 
you know, what's going on and why, and can you talk to this person? Can't you talk to that person? And then it even, it might seem uh, a little much in the moment, but upon reflection, it actually uh, shows you a lot of what's going on. It's all the different jurisdictions, you know what I mean, where you have Vallejo trying to work with, LA trying to work with all these different people and places, and it really shows you just the red tape side of things. So it's yeah. all these different facets that you don't even realize they're touching on until you go back to look, and you're like, oh, this is why they had problems with that evidence, because of the bureaucracy, or this is why they had that. Like every – and not to jump back to the wire, but it's, you know, it's all the pieces matter. And if you don't have one little thing, then this just kind of falls apart and becomes bland. Because that was, you know, the red tape thing is one of the, I think, one of the biggest points of, of this case. And probably one of the more entertaining parts when you, you start watching that part about how um, they're trying to coordinate everything. And, and then this person's like, you have to call that person. And then that person calls someone else. And then you have to call that person. And mm-hmm. and then there, it, it's just, it feels like if they, if it was in today's scenario and we have the technology that we have now with less of the delays and all that stuff maybe the case would have been all faster because there would be so much more, I guess, like less of less boundaries to jurisdiction and information being distributed. Although I'm pretty sure, I mean, at least according to my own government <laughs> that I worked with, that I work with, it seems like red tape is always going to be there. Yeah. And I think there's a character I really wanted to see more of, and obviously because we're so grounded in reality, we obviously couldn't. Um, and that's Brian Cox, Melvin Belly, the um, the Cox. lawyer. That phone <laughs> call where the Zodiac's apparently phoning in, and mm-hmm. and the scene which follows it where he's in real life, and you've got like pretty much every cop in San Francisco plus air units and everyone else, <laughs> um, sort of swarming, swarming this potential sort of uh, scene here. I've just the interaction that Brian Cox's character has with the the Zodiac, well, the supposed Zodiac killer, I mean, did either of you feel that it was the Zodiac you were speaking to or it was someone imitating the Zodiac? Because I go back and forth each time I watch it, whether it is the actual Zodiac or not that he's speaking to. So, I, I'm in your boat. I Sometimes I think I do. Sometimes I think I don't. It's one of those just wild goose chase. It's somebody... It's uh, like somebody pulling a fire alarm when there's not a real fire. And all of a sudden, everybody rush, and they, uh, what is it, immediately they go to that place, and it's all swarmed, and nothing really comes of it. So I think it's, I don't know, I think it's hogwash. Yeah, because I think the the, the whole, I think what makes this, this whole Zodiac case so, I guess, so intriguing to watch is is more the fact that we never know who it is. And it's the mystery of the unknown that really carries this story really well. So everything that happens whenever a killer shows up or whatever they're, what, whatever is being talked about and whatever cases that they're claiming is linked to it, how much truth and how much is... is he, he's taking credit for a lot of things that are happening. But then, you know, there's one point where they, they're, they're saying that Maybe not everything he's taking credit for is actually what is something that he did, but he's just taking credit because it just kind of boosts his rep a bit, and and he likes the attention and he likes the fame and 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 all that um, all that he's getting out of this from the name that he's created for himself. So 
everything in this is a mystery. I think I, I think for myself, I, I think that anything that happens is the Zodiac, especially any communication is the Zodiac uh, that's responding and connecting. And they're just getting a bit, you know, uh, overly confident in what they're saying. They, they're getting a bit cocky and they, they just think that they're going, they're going to get away with it anyways. They're not going to be found. Uh, because, you know, because even, you know, you think about the phone call and then, and then it was like, they called and then we had that whole scene where he ends up finding that information about calling on his birthday and whatever. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think it's, it's because of this unknown that we get to have all this whole discussion and this whole, and, and that's, that's what makes these things fun, (laughs) fun to watch at least. Yeah, definitely. Um, now I just want to sort of skip a uh, skip to the end, really, and that final potential suspect that we that we meet here. And I'm trying to remember what the name of the the guy was, but he's um... oh, Nick. Do you remember who we, the last guy he meets is? Oh, uh, Bob Vaughn. Yeah, when he um, goes to have the meeting with Bob Vaughn. Did, did anyone think that Gray Smith was actually going to walk out of that meeting? Because I was so sure that it was going to be like <laughs> a cut to black that something we're going to end up with Blair Witch again. That we're going to get this sudden like moment and he's going to like Finch is going to cut us off and go, oh, this is this and this happened. And it was like, but no, we have this incredibly. Um, if, I mean, if you thought the earlier sequence with the the woman in the car with her baby was bad. I mean, this scene is like on a whole other level. It's so unbelievably tense. And the fact that he puts himself in these stupid positions <laughs> the whole time he's inside this guy's house is just, oh, it just gets me every time. Yeah, it's a, it's a real nightmare. And every time I watch it, I still get nervous. I know it's going to happen. I've seen it time and time again, but I still get nervous. And that's, you know, just the signs of great performances um, great visual work with the camera. Again, yeah. yeah, he's making some silly choices, but it you're so in it. And at that point, he just wants to find the truth, and he's willing to look yeah. anywhere just to get just to get a, a sniff of confirmation, just to get the littlest tip of yes, you're right, or yes, you're on the right track. Just something, and I think he'll go anywhere for it. Yeah, I think that it, you know, in, in this case, yes, it is a stupid decision, but. Like Nick makes a really good point that he's into deep already. Um, he's he's just in this so much that all he wants to see is look this guy in the eye, and and that's what he says, right? Mm-hmm. He 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 just wants to look this guy in the eye and know who he is. Um, he doesn't, you know, it, it it's just seeing, just acknowledging who, the, like realizing who this person is. That's more important to him because uh, just like all the other characters over this whole time of investigation, that's lost so much of themselves and their families and their life to this case, he's also going through the same thing. So it kind of gives his character justification for making, I guess, this stupid choice. Uh, yeah. I mean, in comparison to the whole one, the whole stupid choice before from the lady. Um, I mean, I have to say that when it comes to that Fincher trademark of shown as the face of evil, I think that Bovan is probably one of the most subtlest examples that we can get. And, I it I'm still unsure. Is are we supposed to believe that Bob Vaughn was the Zodiac and that for some reason he chooses to let Gray Smith like walk away? Because it seems to be sometimes you watch it and you think, oh, this is what Finch is trying to tell us that you know 
Graysmith basically got us got into a position where he was finally over out of his depth because the whole way through he seems like regardless of the fact he's being this amateur sort of sleuth and piecing this all together you never get the feeling that he's getting out of his depth he always feels in control of the situation and when he obviously has that meeting with Bob Vaughn it's one of the the first time we actually see him truly realize that you know maybe I've overset the mark maybe I'm in too deep at this point um but yeah certainly there's something about Bob Vaughn's uh, character there's certainly something there whether he is innocent whether he is the Zodiac it's never fully clarified there's just the hint that something's there maybe the Zodiac isn't one person what do we know right I mean you you don't you, that that's the that's that's the whole situation right now is no one knows anything <laughs> even after so many years of investigation all we have is speculation and it's so frustrating right. it's so frustrating to not have have the that sort of answer that you you so badly want to to this thing and you just realize much like uh john doe and seven that we're just presented with this puzzle that we're just going to muse over for the rest of time that here finch once again has given us a killer a, a film where the killer basically wins um and i mean you could say again the same for fight club i mean tyler dead and essentially wins you know the credit card companies all get destroyed everyone's credit goes back to zero in yeah. theory Mm-hmm. Um, in the game, the company wins. It's I don't know what it is about Fincher when you start looking at his films that you know the bad guys seem to win an awful lot. It seems. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's kind of how the world works anymore. So it's just he's just kind of uh, taking that mirror out and saying, "Look, even though the outside of this mirror is all decorative and it looks cool, look at the inside. Look directly in the center, and you're not gonna like what you see." Um, have you, either of you, actually looked at the real people behind who are obviously portrayed it? Because I mean, obviously, this is based on real life. This isn't uh, a fantastical version of the story. It's actually, you know, it's an autobiographical tale, I believe, or a true crime tale. So I just wondered if either of you had obviously drawn the comparisons between like how the characters look in the film and how they look in in real life at all. I have. Not. I haven't. I have to say, it's quite scary when you look at some of the the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, like Toshi's like very similar to Ruffalo, and with Graysmith again. I think Gyllenhaal really nailed it. But there's something about Gyllenhaal's charm, which I think just makes you believe whatever he's playing is just it. It, it is he is that character. So and it often makes me wonder when I watch these things. It's like you know, do you like think who would be playing yourself if they you know when we finally run out of superhero movies to adapt and they just move on to like making fill out blogs and podcasters who would be playing you in like the French Toast Sunday movie or whatever. <laughs> they're going to set up a new franchise where they're just going to like make the French Toast Sunday movie and then they're going to make the Lambcast movie and then bring it all together in some like Avengers style plot. Mm, that would be, that'd that'd be insane. Do you think of I would watch that though. Ooh, um, I, I the fact you say I've... you watch the movie based on yourself. <laughs> I w- <laughs> I'm uh I'm I'm a narcissist, plain and simple. I I love hearing my voice. Like I'm gonna listen to this episode when it comes out. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, um, I, 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 I want to say Nick Frost. Um, I've had people give me those comparisons before. Yeah. Um, they've also compared me to one of the guys on Impractical Jokers. But I can't stand that show, so I just tend to ignore that one, <laughs> and I just stick with uh, Nick Frost. So I could, I could see that. I could see Nick Frost. 
Kim doing a... I don't know right now. I, I had one before, and then I was like... And then I was like, I'm, I'm like on the fence. I never know what to say about these things. Like, who could play me? I, I'm so normal. Who's normal? You know, like <laughs> actresses are, don't ever look normal. They're, they're, they have this kind of fame to them, right? They have this beauty and stuff like yeah. that. I don't, I don't associate myself with any of these things. I would say Orkafina, but then again, if we were casting Orkafina, I would just have to play myself, just so I can hang out with Orkafina. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know. I, I don't know. For me, I think I would say like um, maybe Angela, baby. All right, let's go. I know that um, for Lackey, I want them to bring in Martin Starr. I know for years I keep saying that he's him and him, Lewis Black and um, Penn, um, Penn Gillette. I just <laughs> the, my dream roundtable. Is to get Lackey, Pendulet, and S Black just together. I'm, I don't know. The world might implode if you get the three similar people together in terms of voice. Yeah. But uh, I think Martin Starr would really nail Lackey over at uh, Movies and Tea. Um, I can see that. The Van over at uh, Cinema Rico, I think, would be just a trip to see someone try and replicate that whirlwind of creativity that he is. I feel like you can get like a John Malkovich to get really deep in there. And figure it out. Mm. I know Jay. Over the, I think Jay keeps pushing for like Jason Statham to play him. The amount of times I hear him do the Statham impression, he's trying to work into our mind that the two are the same. So it's a fairly impressive impression, though I must say. Mm. <laughs> um, as for myself, I've for years I've always said that um, Giovanna Rabishi is the guy okay. I'd, I'd have. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. And then more recently, I. Hope. I because we finally got Saturday Night Live over here after, I don't know, like 42 seasons. They finally brought it over to the UK. Um, and I keep saying Pete Davidson, who I've had a okay. strange obsession okay. with. But he's more tattooed than I am, so... Way of us tattooed, even... <laughs> it's so unnecessary. But, um, oh, I'm, I'm, for some reason, I'm just strangely obsessed with that, with, with him at the minute, so... But like me, yeah, it's, I can um, see either. We come from similar areas. We're both like part seagull, part garbage. But um, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> what a comparison! <laughs> He's from Staten Island. I'm from, <laughs> I'm from the coast as well. Part seagull. <laughs> oh man, oh. I needed that laugh today. Thank you. I'm glad. Ooh. <laughs> mm. uh, but um, anything else we haven't really touched upon this? Because I feel that Until Deck is just like it's a, it's one of those films that's very difficult to sort of like describe if you've not seen it before. So hopefully, we're not infuriated people who loved it, and hopefully, not confounded people who didn't like it as to sort of really sort of uh, solidified why they didn't like it after this episode, but. Is there anything else in this one, this film that we haven't sort of touched upon that you really want to sort of bring up? Um, just I mean, and we've we've been touching on it with all the actors and everything. Just how stacked this cast is! Like, it's a really, really well put together cast. Mm-hmm. There's not a single person in here where I'm like, mm, could have done with somebody else. Like, everyone is just so well cast. You see so many faces where you're like, oh, I like that guy, like Donald Logue or or Dermot Mulroney. And then you see someone like, uh, what's his name? Uh, he plays one of the detectives. 
I can't think of his name. He's oh, like an older guy, kind of bald. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, Anthony Edwards. Um, yeah, as, like you said, he's normally bald because I'm used to seeing him in the mm. ER. And the uh, yeah. no, the other guy. He in in one of the other district. He's like older. Oh, um, oh, Elias um... Cotus. Yes, him. Um, when I'm looking at him, I'm always like, God, I've seen him before. He was Casey Jones in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Oh, really? <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> oh god, yes he was. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so like seeing people like this like and you know like Jimmy Simpson, like seeing all these people, it's like I you know, I like seeing these faces, I like these people and they just all make it work and they sell it. It's sometimes you see a movie and you're like, "Oh, that's Jake Gyllenhaal." But other times it's like, "Oh, that's Robert Graysmith." And it really just this cast just works and I really like that. Could they play Vaughn in Crash as well? I don't know. That is some damn good casting of his Vaughn. That's, uh, <laughs> that's another one. God, that's a whole other rabbit hole we'll go down with him. But, um, yeah, I mean, I have to really remark him in the cast. It's not like... I mean, at this point, Fincher's got quite a few hits under his belt. I mean, he could essentially just do the Tarantino thing of just casting whoever he wanted, but he doesn't. He just goes with the right people for the part. And I think... The fact that he's using like character actors, he's not just stacking it with star power. Um, even with like the main leads here, I mean, these aren't exactly at this sort of stage in their career. They're not sort of like huge marquee names that he's sort of like resting his film on. I mean, Gyllenhaal is still, I would say, still pretty much an indie sort of darling at this point. And even though he's sort of just recently sort of made the shift into more sort of mainstream work, with obviously playing um, a damn fine Mysterio in uh, Spider-Man: Far yeah. From Home. I really like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't when they said they're doing Mysterio. I had no idea because that is one of the most difficult characters you could do. Yeah, absolutely. And just how they did it, it was brilliant. If you didn't know the character, uh, if you knew the character, it was a new twist, and it it shocked me when we got like to the twist in in that film. It's sort of like. Oh wow, that's a really clever way of doing this character. I'm bravo to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's funny too if you look someone like Gyllenhaal, he goes from what like Donnie Darko and Bubble Boy. Mm. All of a sudden, he's Jarhead and and Graysmith and Zodiac. And now, like you said, he's Mysterio, and he's uh, I can't think of his name, but he's in stuff. He can do the big projects, but he can also still do stuff like Velvet Buzzsaw. And show up on a Netflix show that uh, Mulaney just did, the Sack Lunch Bunch. Like, that whole thing is Mr. Music. Like, he, he can traverse those two worlds, and he makes it work every single time. Like, he can, do, he can do no wrong. Even when he does weird stuff like Enemy, which I absolutely love. Like, mm-hmm. he, he can do no wrong in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, we have to we'll give credit to Jennifer Anderson. It was on her suggestion that uh, both uh, Gillian Hall and Mark Ruffalo had were cast in the film. Um, really? Yeah. She um, had a conversation with uh, Finch and he was going over ideas for casting and she was like talking about actors that she really liked and she'd obviously worked with Gillian Hall in The Good Girl and she'd worked with Mark Ruffalo in Rumor Has It and um, she sort of put them, put them forward as like two actors she really liked working with and I mean Finch, Gyllenhaal was on Fincher's sort of radar because of Donnie Darko and that he liked the fact that he could do that double coin sort of thing, you know, he can play the naive thing and he can also do this sort of like possessed um, sort of 
sort of performance here. And Gyllenhaal actually did a lot of research um, on the real Graysmith. I mean, he watched videotapes of him and studied like his behavior and mannerisms. And I think it really comes across. So you're not watching Gyllenhaal just play some, you know, wannabe sleuther. You feel that he is actually playing a real person, which I think is no easy feat because so many times when you're trying to do mannerisms and represent a character, you can just go so horribly, horribly wrong. But here I think he does it subtly enough just to to make the character his own, yet at the same time still feel like a real person you're watching. Yeah, I had I had no idea about the Aniston. Like, how is she just hanging out with Fincher? Are they neighbors or something? I, or? As I said, I have no idea how Fincher and Anson, because I mean, it's not like the two have worked together on anything, so... Um, and I mean, just going back over like Fincher's filmography, I could find no link there to to Anderson at all. Um, but maybe it's because of Bruce of um, Brad Pitt. Maybe because oh yeah, he was out at the time. I mean, obviously, he worked pretty intensively with both Brad Pitt and Edward Norton on Fight Club prior to this. And I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how Hollywood works. I, you know. Just a guy true. broadcasting his coffee table, so. <laughs> but, mm. um, yeah, Anthony Edwards is a really interesting choice, really. I mean, I forever sort of associate him with ER. I mean, I forget that he's in Top Gun half the time. What? He plays Goose. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I am a big, I feel really silly right now. Yeah, it's... that is that is embarrassing. I am embarrassed to be a film fan right now. I should have I should have known those things. That's that's wow. I didn't even dawn on me. I don't know why. It's it's and he's got that face too, where you just know when you see him, but it didn't. I mean, he's it's got a mustache and sunglasses. Yeah, but I would thought that he was still. He's not like um, oh the geeky kid from the Breakfast Club who sort of like bulked up after. Breakfast Club. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's unrecognizable now because he's just recently appeared as the guidance counselor in uh, the Goldbergs, and uh, yeah, he's the he's just like super stacked now. He's like um, Danny. Oh god, the um, from Brady Bunch, little ginger kid, uh, Danny. Oh, Masson. oh, I can't think of his name either. But yeah, he's a uh, another jacked up psychopath so <laughs> um yeah. but yeah that's that's my trivia bit for you that's i never knew that's i, I like that i never knew that mm. um finch also used all the president's men as the template for the film which looking back on it i can see where they're going with because i mean all the president's men i mean it's based on the watergate scandal yet it's it's uh, shot like a, a thriller, and it also provided the inspiration for the cigarette smoking man in the in the X Files as well. When they have the uh, meeting in the car garage, that was the uh, inspiration for doing the cigarette smoking man. Okay. And then obviously William B. Davis yeah. went and took what was supposed to be a non-speaking character, just like this one throwaway character, and just like made it the central figure in the whole conspiracy. So, Hmm. Um, uh, you know, I've never seen X Men, but I've wanted to. I, X, I need to jump X on that. X Files. I've never seen X Files, and that's something my. I, I don't know. I was really young when it was on, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll get to it, and I just never got to it. So, oh, it's uh, something it's I got to get to. Still, totally holds up. Oh. Um, <laughs> and you can learn why so many 
young boy age, we're obsessed with Gillian Anderson still. Okay. <laughs> I did like seeing her in Hannibal, so I was was not mad about that. But now I'll have more reason. Yeah, it was. Um... I'll tell you another story about that after we finish. So, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for viewing, if you like Zodiac, what do you recommend watching with it? I mean, there's obviously you got your choice of of lesser Zodiac ripoffs. So, but um, yeah, any sort of shows or films or anything that you would uh, compare it to? Mm. I I can't think of I can't think of one like a direct comparison where you're trying to figure out because I feel like with this you'd have to also find something where maybe you know we don't get a full answer at the end the you know the killer still on the loose kind of thing something that's visually is captivating uh, because most of the time like this is one of those it's a rare thing where you really have a lot of time with the killer. I mean, yeah, you have something like seven where you eventually see the whole face and you understand the motivations, mm-hmm. but here you're just catching like glimpses of shadow or they're, you know, decked out in a cloak. I mean, there's the potential that it's the Arthur Lee Allen character and we kind of could see and get a vibe for who he is, but there's no like official reveal and I, nothing's jumping out at me for like another show or film that's done that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't go so detail with my uh, with my further viewing. Um, I actually thought like if we think in David Fincher world, uh, I actually linked it really a lot to Seven. I thought, but I think Seven's a stronger movie. Um, so I would pair it with Seven, or if you watch something like really, really, really super similar, it'd be like Mindhunter. I've only seen season one, so yeah, season two is different than, you know, can I say? <laughs> um, I mean, other than that, I mean, if you were talking about something based on um, a real life thing, I, I've been going through a Wolf Creek phase right now. So uh, since I've been watching the TV series, so I thought about Wolf Creek would be a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly they've got the same sadistic sort of streak to them. So Yeah, and... and that- I mean, the last, I think the last one, it took me uh, forever to remember, the, remember because I had I had a movie that was just bothering me that was, like, felt really similar. And I would spotlight, I think, in a sense, just, like, the reporters okay. and the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's a fair, good comparison. Um, as for myself, I've got a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the closest sort of comparison I could see in terms of, like, what Finch is trying to aim for here would be season one of True Detective, uh, which people are still talking Ooh. about now, even though the two seasons which followed have not come as close. For myself, I wasn't as caught up in it, um, although I did like what it was saying out to achieve. I mean, obviously, you've got these two detectives who are trying to solve an unsolved murder, and it goes across multiple timelines as we follow them, and we see how the case obviously affects them. And I think perhaps the fact that it gave us a payoff perhaps took something away. Certainly, it's a film with some real sort of standout moments. And as I say, it does feel like a film in many ways. The fact you've got such marquee casting in both Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey's still in the height of his uh, McConaughey-sense at this point. So, <laughs> um, On top of that, I mean, the slightly more trash, but very sort of similar in the same hour. I would say check out Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. Um, certainly a very different movie to this, but it's got the same ammo of just, you know, this these two killers being sort of caught up in the world of 
you know, celebrity killers and media, and at the same time, they have the same ammo of always leaving that one survivor to tell the tale. Real style stand-up performance from both Juliette Lewis, who's absolutely nuts, and Woody Harrelson, who reminds us all what he's surprised us. Um, <laughs> just a really good film. If you can, check out the director's cut. I think it's a lot more superior to the regular cut, and has some uh, fun added bits of gore in it, including uh, Tommy Lee Jones' prison and Warden's head on a stick, which is just a beauty. Um, another one I recommend is Freeze Memories of Murder um, from obviously Man of the Moment. Um, now, this one obviously takes place in 1986 as we follow two detectives attempting to deal with solving the case of a series of rapes and murders that are happening. Um, now, as I said, it's unfortunately for some reason this film has become a a little more difficult to get hold of, so definitely check your human services, although Criterion are going to be putting out a release of uh, this one. Um, but, um, who's directed Parasite? Does anyone remember fans? Oh, uh, June? June? Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. That's... Butch that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Bung Joon-ho really sort of shines, and I think if you were like myself, put off by the host, I think... Harry just really sort of shows why he's a director of note to watch and is along with the likes of uh and Snowpiercer he's just this is just a really phenomenal uh film and worth checking out uh last one is the idea of you know serial killers taunting uh police and that would be to check out Sons. the first yeah. horror movie to Oscar still a phenomenal release and features two stand-up performances from Um, our previous episode talking about Panic Room so we won't uh, talk any more about that uh, but uh, that to be what I would recommend Wait, I, I, just, I just thought about one oh, guys. <laughs> I saw one further viewing it was on my mind the whole time I couldn't remember the name I just remembered it um, I only watched season one of this and I think it ended it's season long it's a Canadian series called Cardinal which follows two uh, detectives that go look which pretty much go solve kind of like the impossible case type of thing cool yeah. um, so that obviously brings us to the end of uh, tonight's episode thank you very much to joining us and uh, giving us your insights on Zodiac thank you so much for having me I, I love this movie and I love talking about it fantastic and if uh, people want to come and find you where's the best place to come and find you best place to come and find me is frenchtoastsunday.com uh, the podcast we're in the middle of a hiatus kind of thing we're figuring out uh, last minute tweaks to get back up and running um if you like hearing more of just me uh i'm featured guest uh recent couple episodes of the exploding helicopter cast we took a look at far cry uh the uve bowl film and uh you can also catch me on the lamb cast every so often fantastic um so thank you as always uh, for listening thank you to kim as well and kim uh, before we obviously wrap this up where are we heading to next we're heading into 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yep. Um, I move on to slightly lighter material for Fincher. First time watch for both myself and Kim. This one's going to be interesting, especially to see how it ends. Um, as Brad Pitt plays the young man who's aging backwards. But uh, all that to obviously come on our next episode. Um, in the meantime, you can obviously count our archive at uh, Movies and Tea Podcast. 
www.wordpress.com uh, we've got all our four previous seasons on there we've got all the shark weeks and we've also got our friday film club where every week myself and kim both pick a film and put it together into a fun double feature for you to enjoy since the theme sometimes it's not but either way we've got some fun movies for you to check out um also, if uh, you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button and maybe leave us a review. It all helps raise the profile of the show. Um, and in the meantime, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we're also on Instagram as well. But uh, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to special guest Nick and uh, Kim. And uh, we will be back next time to talk about the curious case of Benjamin Button. Until then, good night. Like a star, my vast deep eye opened my eyes to take a peek to find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Just then, when I heard a good man came singing songs of love, then when I heard a good man came singing Girl, 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 girl,